Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, an ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please remember that this podcast is for medical education only and not to diagnose that thing on your eye. So today we have a special episode. We're here live at APOS, AAPOS, which is the National uh, Ophthalmology Pediatrics Meeting, and we're with our special guest, Shagan Bhatia, who is a pediatrics fellow at UCSD with Shiley Eye Institute. Say hi, Shagan. Hello, everyone from San Diego. So today we're continuing our buddy call series, and Shagan is the buddy that we're bringing on for this episode. So today we are covering pediatrics on call, targeted at uh, incoming residents or med students who are taking call for the first time or early on in their residency who want to learn a little bit more about what it takes to handle pediatrics ophthalmology on call. I can say I really... uh... I really wish that I'd had this on my first day because, you know, as an incoming resident, I actually thought I knew what I was doing, at least with some stuff with an eye exam. And then my very first call is for a two-month-old, and I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, kids are scary. So kids actually aren't that scary. Tell us why they're not scary, Shaka. So I basically had a very similar experience to Andrew where one of my first on-call calls was a kid and I thought oh this will be fun I love kids you go up to them and they're just crying so what do you do if a kid is just crying in front of you and you're there as the eye doctor trying to figure out what's going on with their eyes so the first thing that I like to do is just walk into the room don't worry about the exam yet don't worry about the diagnosis just observe the child and build a good relationship with not only the kid but also the parents in the room who are probably freaking out more than the kid so um, the first thing that I like to do is either sing a song or tell a joke depending on the age of the child so here guys I have a good eye joke for you okay all right what did the right eye say to the left eye I really have no idea. Andrew? Is it... uh, This is going to be a no-caps, man. Come on. Something about temporal vision fields. Oh, God. (laughs) So the right eye said to the left eye, just between you and me, something really smells. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's not great, but you know what? It'll it'll get a six-year-old laughing. And me, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any other jokes? I actually have one more. Okay, okay, let's hear it. <laughs> Why did the cell phone wear glasses? I have no idea. Because he lost all of his contacts. Uh. <laughs> it's cheesy, but you know what? If you can get your patient at ease, um, they'll think you're a cool person, a friend maybe, and they won't be so scared. Um, the next thing I like to do is kind of introduce the tools that I'm using. So if I pull out a light, I say, hey. Here's my flashlight. Say hi to the flashlight. If they have a stuffed toy, you can pretend to examine the eyes of the stuffed toy or maybe look at the parent's eyes first just so the kids know that you're not about to give them a shot. I also just tell them, hey, I don't give shots. I don't know how to give shots. And then they're like, okay, fine. Um, So introduce the tools. Um, If you have toys with you, you can maybe just keep like a small toy in your call bag that you have or just pull out your cell phone. Um, There's some optotypes of like dancing alligators that you you can use or even just like a YouTube video of baby shark works really well. Mm, Baby shark. (laughs) How many toys do you recommend carrying around with you on call, Shagun? I would just just pick one favorite toy that you have. <laughs> you don't need more than one. 
doesn't it like have diminishing returns after a while i hear the whole like one one thing one look or something oh um maybe so that's where like your cell phone can become really handy because you can pretty much get anything and if you ask the parents what the kid's favorite show is you can pull that up singing works really well i know not everyone's a singer but the kid's not going to judge you if you can't sing so just do it (laughs) awesome so what about the actual exam what are some pearls that help with the pediatric eye exam so I think like the first thing that uh, will catch you off guard if you're if you don't know is how do you check a vision in someone who can't read? So you pull out your near car and you're like, crap, this kid can't read. <laughs> um, so you really just want to see what their visual behavior is. If they don't like you occluding one eye, that could be a sign that they're not seeing well of that eye. And if they're just scared and don't want one eye occluded, uh, it's better to get a binocular vision than no vision at all. So that's something that you should document. Don't just give up. But for a kid who's not yet verbal, you want to just see if they can react to light. So that's what we'll do in the newborn nursery. Um, And infants is just shine a bright light and they'll often wince to the light. And um, that's about all you can get in that age group. So reacting to light. Um, In older kids who still can't read, you can see if they'll fix and follow on a target, and that's where a toy can be really useful. But if they're not interested in your toy, kids will often just gravitate towards faces. So if you make a funny face or smile at them, um, they'll follow your face. So fix and follow is the next thing. Um, After that, in the clinic, we have other tools um, before they can read. Some of those are symbols or pictures. They're called the Leah symbols. It's useful in kids between the ages of two and five. And they have different shapes like a house, a square, and a heart. And the kids can either say those words out loud or match them with uh, a picture that they hold in their lap. And then after that, you can start using letters. There's an HOTV chart, which um, those are four very simple letters that kids often know before they know the whole alphabet. And then uh, once they learn the alphabet, you can use the regular Snellen visual acuity chart. Do you ever mess around with the CSM system too much? So some practices um, will use the CSM system. I don't personally use it very much because it requires checking each eye alone and then uh, checking both eyes together, and you have to do that each thing twice. But just as a background, CSM stands for Central Steady Maintain, and it's used to describe the fixation, the motion and the ability to track an object for each eye and it is one way to describe a child's visual behavior Hmm. but there are other ways to do it as well so how do you get a pressure on a baby i mean i've tried with the tonal pen and you really can't get them to keep their eyes open yeah so as you guys know if the person that you're checking pressure on is squeezing at all the pressure is going to be artificially elevated so what i like to do for kids is just have them close their eyes that's something that you know they'll feel comfortable doing and you just press gently on the eyeball um, by palpation to estimate a pressure it should feel something uh, along the consistency of a grape not like a very uh, hard grape, but more of like a, I guess more this like goes along with your fruit theme. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to fruit for ears. Okay, keep going. And now, now we have the eye care. Um, the eye care is really easy to use um, in all age groups, and it's quite accurate. 
you just have to, I usually tell the child what I'm doing, that this is going to check their pressure. They won't feel anything. And you can even test it out on their arm or their hand so oh. that they know that it's not something scary or sharp. Great. What about when you're actually looking at the eye? I mean, some of these kids, it's hard to even fit their face in this slit lamp. Yeah, so positioning is key, first of all, um, as it is for adults, but it's even tougher in children. Sometimes I'll have them just stand up if they're big enough to fit in the slit lamp. Um, I pretend like it's a bicycle or a motorcycle, have them hold on. You can make some like noises, um, and oftentimes that's like more exciting for them because they feel like they're going on a ride. If they're too small to even fit in the slit lamp, you could just do a pen light exam um, or use a portable slit lamp, which a lot of residencies will have in their on-call bag as well. If you can't get any sort of look, you just want to confirm that the red reflex is equal between the two eyes and that they have a good pupillary reaction. The, I guess the, one of the main points in these PEDS exams is if you can't get anything, get try to get something because mm-hmm. you're going to base your decision on your exam, even though it's going to be limited. I remember feeling like that was such a anxiety inducing thing for me. Like, you know, all the things and elements of a a normal adult eye exam that you have to check, like vision, intraocular pressure, and then you just can't get some of it sometimes for kids. And you can't, and you have to be okay with that. Yeah. So there will be situations, and I'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about a traumatic case, but there will be situations where you won't feel comfortable with the amount of information you can get from the exam. And that's when you have to make a decision on whether or not you want to do an exam under anesthesia to get a better look, if um, you even get the hint that something might be seriously wrong with the eye. Gotcha. So what about eye movements? They seem like such a big part of pathology that presents in children. Can you give us an intro onto what we're looking for? So sure. You're looking for, there's really three categories of eye movements, versions, ductions, and then vergents. So versions are when you look at the eye movements with both eyes open and you're looking as one eye AD ducts and the other one AB ducts, for example. Ductions is when you occlude one eye and you're only looking at the movements in one eye. And then vergence is when both eyes are moving in opposite directions. So just think of what happens to your eyes when you're converging or reading. Both eyes are going towards your nose when both of them are adducting. And divergence is the opposite where both eyes are going out towards the ears. Hmm. And then one important thing that uh, I think often gets overlooked is During your extraocular movement testing, you want to also look for signs of uh, inferior oblique or superior oblique underaction or overaction, which can point you in the direction towards certain diagnoses. So don't forget to check those oblique positions as well. And what are the oblique positions? So if you're looking up Mm -hmm. and in, that will be the inferior oblique, and down and in will be the superior oblique. Oh, okay. Awesome. So, Shagan, if I'm called to the emergency room for a pediatrics case, do you think I'm expected to do things like cover-uncover testing or alternate cover-uncover testing? I guess it depends what the consult reason is, right? I think, yeah, definitely if the patient is complaining of diplopia or double vision or there are some sort of abnormal eye movements when you do your extraocular movements, you are expected to do a cover-uncover testing to uncover um, any strabismus. 
Um, I would say in general on any uh, ophthalmic pediatric exam, it's considered part of the exam to do a cover-uncover test. And what that is is um, you use an occluder to cover one eye at a time. And um, there are two types of tests. First, there's the cover-uncover test, and then there's the alternate cover test. So the first step is to do the cover-uncover test. So you would take an occluder, cover the right eye, uncover the right eye then cover the left eye, and then uncover the left eye and look for any shifting of either eye, which would tell you if there is a tropia, such as an exotropia, esotropia, hypertropia, or hypotropia. And then after you do that, you uh, do the alternate cover test where you cover the right eye and then cover the left eye and then cover the right eye back and forth, back and forth, kind of like swinging between the two eyes, which will uncover atropia and aphoria. Um, so I think it doesn't take long to do. You can, if you don't have an occluder, some people will even just use their hand or their thumb. It's important to yeah. do this test at distance and at near, and the child must be fixating on the object. <laughs> That's the tricky part. <laughs> That's the tricky part, yeah. But really, you just need a couple of um, cover-on-covers to uh, get a manifest deviation to show up. Great. Mm. What if you get a consult saying that uh, the kid's looking inwards all the time and you do your cover and covers and alternates and you don't find anything wrong? So that's when you have to think of something called pseudostrabismus, where it looks like their eyes are turned in, but it's really not. And another way to confirm that diagnosis is just by taking a pen light and looking at where the corneal light reflex lies. The corneal light reflex should be centered in both eyes. And if it is, and they still look like their eyes are turned in, it's likely because they have a wide nasal bridge. And that's one of the most common causes of pseudostrabismus. Mm. So you've made me feel a lot better about how to do the eye exam. But, you know, I remember when I was just starting call, I got this call to say, to ask to evaluate for orbital cellulitis. And I thought that was really scary. What kind of things should we look for? What, what do we think about? So that is a very scary consult because orbital cellulitis can be life-threatening. It can spread to the brain, it can cause meningitis, um, and it's something that you cannot miss in a child for that reason and because it's pretty easily treatable um, and it's not uncommon. So some of the most common causes of orbital cellulitis or preceptal cellulitis in children are related to trauma, either like an insect bite or a laceration that they got on the playground which turns into an infection of the eyelid and the preceptal tissue. It can also be related to like a really bad conjunctivitis, like EKC, where the eyelid gets inflamed as well. And then one of the most common things we see is related to sinus infections. Um, so the bones surrounding the sinus are very thin, and that infection can spread through and start to involve the periorbital tissue. So if it is starting to become something that could endanger the central nervous system, I assume that they'd probably be showing other signs of illness too, right? Yeah, so that's where it's really important to do a very good exam, but also take a good history. So I'll always ask the parents, is, the, is your child acting normally? So do they look like they have a systemic illness on top of this local infection? Do they have a fever? Are they eating well? Are they drinking well? And they'll often tell you um, if the child is just not acting like themselves. And if it truly is like a septic picture, then they could be lethargic on top of that, which you may pick up on your exam. 
Um, in terms of the eye itself, um, you really need to make sure that there are no orbital signs. And some of the orbital signs that we talk about are, is there proptosis of the eye? Is it bulging out? Is there a lot of swelling of the conjunctiva, which we call chemosis? Can they move their eye all around? Uh, if there's a lot of swelling in the orbit, some of the extraocular muscles may be involved. And then if you could get a good vision, decreased visual acuity on that side is a sign of uh, optic nerve involvement, as is decreased color vision and the presence of an afferent pupillary defect as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, something that makes me really uncomfortable as a mainly outpatient provider is sometimes the ED, or sometimes I feel like I'll have to make a call about whether to admit a patient. Do you have any suggestions for what to do in that situation? So if this infection has been worsening and they've already been on oral antibiotics and failed in oral antibiotic therapy, I think that's a very good reason to admit for IV antibiotics. Also, if they have any signs that they're septic, if they have a fever or tachycardia and it looks like things might be getting worse and not better, uh, you need to admit. And if they're less than one year old, then that's also an indication for admission. And then when do you scan patients? So the the reason to scan here is to look for a subperiosteal abscess. That's an abscess that forms in the bone itself, and many times these abscesses need to be drained. Um, So if you suspect that things are worsening on IV antibiotics, then I would scan to make sure that there's no abscess that is formed that the antibiotics cannot penetrate to. And um, if you do see an abscess, you don't always have to drain it. Mm. So the the rule that we're often taught and tested on is that uh, if the patient is uh, less than nine, most of these abscesses will resolve on medical management alone. But if they're greater than nine years old, that could be a reason to drain the abscess in the operating room. So yeah, that's a really scary thing to be dealing with possible orbital cellulitis. Maybe one of the other scary things that I've seen before is when there's a traumatic ocular case involving a kid. Do you have any tips or pointers for dealing with pediatric ocular trauma, Shagan? Yeah, so pretty much you're going to want to get the same information that you get for an adult. But there are a few special considerations with children. Um, I think one of the big things that uh, we're expected to do as first-year residents is to assess if there's a ruptured globe. And that's a a big decision because if you do suspect it, then that patient needs to go to the operating room within the next 24 hours. So that's when um, you need to really perfect your exam skills. And if you feel like you're not getting a good enough exam, you need to make the call whether or not to sedate the child and do an exam under anesthesia, or maybe even just give them some intranasal Versed in the emergency room itself just to get them calm enough so that you can make that decision. And on numerous occasions, I have elected to give intranasal Versed after speaking with the emergency room physicians and the parents uh, because an eye exam can be really difficult to do in a child that is in pain or scared after uh, an accident. Do you ever get pushback from maybe primary teams or even parents about possibly getting head imaging given the, you know, exposure to radiation with something like a CT head? 
Right. So it's always like a, if the benefits outweigh the risks, then we'll go for that. But the conversation needs to be had about the radiation exposure in children. I think that more now, now that MRI is more available, uh, people are uh, going towards MRI over CT scan for even for um, trauma cases like this. Is there anything else special about pediatric trauma or, or cases that involve trauma or the periorbit that we should think about in pediatrics specifically? Yeah, I think one thing specifically for peds, which doesn't apply to adults, is you need to be aware of deprivational amblyopia. Um, and that can happen when one eye has lost vision for either a short period of time or even a longer period of time. So for like a short period of time, you can think of something like someone gets hit in the eye with a ball and their eyelid gets swollen uh, to the point where they have ptosis and the eye is shut. Um, that eye actually very quickly in a young child can develop amblyopia. So you need to check for that. But you also need to be aware not to intentionally occlude an eye for an extended period of time. So we're always taught that in the setting of a hyphema to patch the eye or shield the eye. Um, just be aware that you should use a clear shield if you're going to be using a shield so as not to induce deprivational amblyopia. And if there is something that can't be cleared, um, such as like a total hyphema, uh, it may drive you towards uh, doing an AC washout, uh, depending on the age of the child. Yeah, about that, Shagan, I think um, the age limits for considering amblyopic deficits, it always seemed to be like the studies kept saying it was older and older, they might benefit from things like patching, right? So is there like an age cutoff that you stop worrying about this so much? So I worry more in the younger kids um, yeah. and you worry less as they get older. I think generally the cutoff, there's no real cutoff, like you said, because we can push it and push it and push it. But I think anybody over the age of eight, you have to worry less about. And younger than eight, it's, it's a real issue and something you need to check for and talk to the parents about. Uh, if there... If there is real ocular trauma that happens, like a ruptured globe or a cataract, and um, the kid ends up going to the operating room, uh, then just for your long-term management, you have to really start amblyopia treatment and therapy for that eye uh, shortly after the surgery is done. So ensuring that uh, there's a clear media for the child, checking their refraction, making sure that they're in the correct glasses, and starting patching uh, pretty soon after, and it needs to be aggressive, rehabilitative. And I think we've all, we've all had those unfortunate times, too, where we've seen what looks like a traumatic ocular case in a kid, and then it, something seems off or fishy with it, and we realize that it potentially is non-accidental. How do you go about even just dealing with it once you kind of come to that realization? So I think um, being on the front lines and maybe seeing the patient first, um, a lot of times the emergency room will pick up on these details and they're very astute to non-accidental trauma. But we should also be aware that um, sometimes the injuries that are coming in are a result of abusive child trauma. Um, so if the story is not matching up with the injuries that you're seeing, um, if you look in and you see retinal hemorrhages that maybe the ED hasn't seen, that's something that needs to be taken very seriously and reported. 
as a resident. Uh, I wouldn't um, take a lot of that responsibility on as yourself because there are a lot of medical legal components involved. So at that point, if you are suspicious, I would turn over that responsibility to first year senior and then most likely it will go to an attending level. That's how I would deal with it. Hmm. Thank you. Do you guys mind if I mention one thing about the intraocular pressure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, throw it in. I remember one time I was freaking out again when I thought this kid's IOP was elevated and I felt like I had to get an accurate intraocular pressure. I felt like I couldn't rely on like just the soft palpation thing. So the emergency room did a ketamine sedation for him and I checked it with a tonopin and found the pressure was 60 and I freaked out even more, sent him to my glaucoma attending the next day who found nothing wrong with a normal IOP. What did I do wrong, guys? It's the ketamine. Yeah. So um, this comes up, I feel like, not infrequently nowadays because you need to get sedation for a pediatric exam sometimes in the ER. But then once you're doing that, just remember, if you used ketamine, just throw whatever IOP considerations you had out the window because it's not going to be accurate. Yeah, on that note, also, if you have a kid under anesthesia, um, the inhalation anesthetic will uh, decrease the IOP. So you want to do your IOP measurement before doing the rest of the exam under anesthesia to get an accurate measurement. And before we end, I have to insert one editor's note here. Uh, while we were recording this in San Diego, we forgot to ask Shagan the question we are going to ask all of our specialty buddy call guests, which is, why did you choose your specialty? Hopefully this helps any early ophthalmology resident who's still trying to pick their specialty. So I emailed Chagan what her answer would have been, and she emailed me back this, and I will quote her directly. I chose pediatric ophthalmology during my second year of residency when I realized that my favorite part of any clinic would be if a child happened to be scheduled in clinic. I absolutely love working with children and their families, and it is ultimately what drove me to pursue pediatric ophthalmology. Also, being able to help someone's vision so early in life is truly remarkable and can be life-altering in a really real way for them. And that's Pediatrics on Call with Shagan Bhatia, again, our wonderful pediatrics fellow at UCSD with the Shiley Eye Institute. So great talking to you again, Shagan, and having you on, having you on the show with us. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Good luck, guys. Yeah, enjoy Thanks. the rest of AAPOS, you guys. Do you really call it that, or do you just say APOS? <laughs> we just call it APOS. Okay, yeah. enjoy APOS, you guys. I'm I'm jealous of the California sun right now. Oh, <laughs> it's nice. We just had uh, Mexican food. Yeah, it was really good. We both got nachos. It was not, delicious. Not helping the jealousy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with a number four. And our website is running at eyes4ears.net, which is the word for F-O-R this time. If you like this episode and want to see more of the Buddy Call series that we're doing, it really helps us if you like and review us on iTunes. Bye. Bye. Bye.